0: 2 Corinthians, the series is titled, Weak is Strong, and uh, to be honest, it's been something of a a brain-bending study so far, because one of the things we're learning as we get deeper into this epistle of 2 Corinthians is that it it, it describes life in two seemingly incompatible experiences— So we started out in chapter 1, finding where Paul talks about comfort in suffering. In chapter 3, he talked about glory manifesting through shame. In chapter 4, it was about life working through death. In chapter 6, we're going to discover riches through poverty. In chapter 12, we're going to look at power through weakness. I mean it's like Second Corinthians just reaches right into the center of human existence and just kind of fiddles with all of our categories. And that's a good thing. Because God wants to make some adjustments in our thinking and, and in our heart. And I know that's going that's going on for me as I'm studying this and I trust that, that you're having the same experience. So this morning we are arriving in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Actually, we've arrived there already. We're a little deeper into it. So you can open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Just three verses today, verses 18, 19, and 20. The title of today's message is The Ambassadors' Appeal. The Ambassadors' Appeal. And let's just jump together right into verse 18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God. Let's pray. Lord, there is undoubtedly two different categories of, of folks here this morning. Lord, there are those who have been reconciled to you through Christ, and those whom you are pursuing for reconciliation to you through Christ. And Lord, my prayer is this morning as we, as we delve into this important passage that you would reach all of us in some significant and personal way through our time together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The other day we had a family over for dinner, family from the church, and as they were leaving, I showed them one of my few earthly prized possessions, that is apart from my wife and children. And it's a framed excerpt of a sermon that was preached by Charles Spurgeon. So you might recall Charles Spurgeon, 19th century famed London pastor known as the Prince of Preachers. And the reason why this sermon is framed is because portions of it are in his actual handwriting. It was a gift to me from Pete Griesley. Remember Pete? He's the pastor from Wales. He's preached here a couple of times. Once Charles Spurgeon was Asked by some people that were visiting his church about the secret of his success. They asked, What is the source of the extraordinary power that you appear to have as a preacher? And he replied simply and without hesitation, He said, quote, My people pray for me. And Spurgeon was emphatic about this. Spurgeon was, wanted there to be no misunderstanding that the secret of of his success, the potency behind his power and his ministry, was God. Now, to this point, thus far, much of the letter that we've been studying together has been dedicated to Paul's defense. As you probably recall, there are false teachers, they've infiltrated the church, and they have launched an attack on Paul's credibility requiring him to defend the authenticity of his ministry. And so last week, we saw how Paul clarified the distinction that he saw between them and him. He said, they're about appearance. He said, I'm about the heart. He said, they speak for men. I speak for God. He said, they love themselves. The love of Christ, he said, controls us. And so now he's at a place in the letter where, having said those things, he wants to answer the same question that was posed to Charles Spurgeon. In other words, what makes all of this possible? What is the source behind the power that allows a man to be able to say that he is controlled by the love of God? What allows a man to be able to stand before others in defense of himself and say that he he is driven by heart? rather than face, by heart, rather than appearance. And to be honest, this is another place where we encounter something that's entirely unexpected because Paul locates the source, of the, reali- the source of these realities in the doctrine of reconciliation. Now, if that's not a word that you're familiar with, don't be intimidated by it because we're going to talk about it and explain it in just a second. But in order to get there, I want to describe for you from this passage, what what is the connection that Paul is making between transformation and reconciliation? What's the connection? Because that's where Paul's going. After talking about how his life has been transformed, he's now describing the source, the power behind this, this transformation. And I want to give it to you in three different A's, beginning with the author, of reconciliation. So, the question of authorship is, is behind this, this, this power, and the question of authorship that is behind this power is really resolved within the first five words of the passage that we read this morning. This is how Paul starts, all this is from God, all this is from God. In other words, to the question of the source of his power that makes, makes him a new creation, of the source of his power that allows him to love and be controlled by love, he says all of that, all of it is from God. Now, if, at first glance, that kind of almost hits you as kind of a patently simple statement. It makes Paul appear like, you know, I mean, thanks a lot, Captain Obvious, for making that very general, that very generic statement that this is kind of all of God, almost seems super spiritual. But see, Paul's getting at something specific here because he knows something about himself and he knows something about God, and God knows it as well. And that is that there is always this kind of guerrilla warfare in our souls over the credit for the changes that happen in our life. So Paul's talking about these extraordinary changes that have happened and he wants to make sure that, that everyone is clear on the source of those changes and that there would be no mistake that it's not simply because he determined to change himself, that he decided one day that he was going to employ himself in a particularly brilliant way so that he could, result, he could have these changes result within him. And part of the reason why it's so important to realize the significance of that statement, all this is from God, is because there's almost a predictable trajectory that we can have as we walk with Christ. And it goes something like this. We are, we are converted. And so we, you know, we, we have this experience with Jesus. The Spirit of God comes into our hearts. He renews us, and we love Jesus in a new way. And then the Spirit empowers us so that change begins to happen within our lives. And, and, and when we begin to change towards God, that which was typically bad fruit in our life becomes good fruit in our life. So the fruit comes, but along with the fruit, there's all, often this other thing that just begins to creep in behind it, and that is, that is a, a pride. That is something within us that just kind of sh- begins to shift the responsibility for why we've changed from God to us. From something in God to something in us, and the effect of it is, is that God, who was very big for us at conversion, begins to shrink, smaller and smaller and smaller. It, it, it's almost like what you know what happens when you're when you're working on your computer. You know, you work on your computer, but after the work is done, the computer goes into a kind of sleep mode, and the computer is still there. It's still On, it's still working, but it's just not working in the same way at present. That's kind of how we relate to God sometimes. He did the hard work at conversion. He was with us in a real strong way when we're banging out the document. But then he kind of goes on sleep, and we take over. Paul says, no, 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 you have to understand, all of that, all of this, all of this is from God. So now what happens in the passage is that the this, in all this is from God, the this gets unpacked through this idea of reconciliation. Now, this word reconciliation is used five different times in the passage. Actually, if you include verse 21, the final passage in this chapter, it's used five different times. By the way, Paul's the only New Testament author to use this word. The word reconciliation means to change, but particularly, to to change particularly in the standing between two people, or the standing in a relationship of one being to another being. So in Greek social circles, it meant a change between different parties, in, in Greek religious affairs, it meant a change between the deity that the person worshipped and the person themselves. And we notice from this passage that there are very, various uses of the word, of the term being used. I mean, you just look down, you see verse 18, Christ reconciled us to himself. The ministry of reconciliation is used, and it says God was reconciling the world to himself, and then later it says the message of reconciliation, and then it cries out, be reconciled to God. And so I want us to understand that though there are these different uses, there are some fundamental commonalities, there are some fundamental things that are uniform within the passage that are implied by all the uses of those words. In other words, when you, when you use the word reconciliation, this is implied. Number one, it implies there was a former friendship, there was a former relationship. See, this term always assumes an earlier alliance. You never reconcile two people that don't know one another. You never reconcile people that didn't have a relationship in the past. And so what the term is doing, and this is fascinating because what the term is doing is it's catapulting us back to the Garden of Eden. And, and, and you remember the story. I mean, just picture it in your mind. You know, you have this place of, of joy and and beauty, and these two beings, Adam and Eve, that are living a life of, of in one sense, deep satisfaction, because each and every day they are walking with God. They are walking alongside of God, and there's nothing in their relationship with God that has divided them. There's nothing in their relationship with one another that has estranged them or alienated them. They are together in the garden, God and man, in the beauty of this environment, they are, they are naked, which, by the way, when that's used in, first, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, that's not a sexual thing. That's, that's symbolic of a life that is uncovered before God and before one another. That signifies the transparency, the depth of relationship, that there was nothing that stood between God and man, and there was nothing that stood between man and woman, not even clothing. But now, all of a sudden, there is a hiss in the garden, and sin slithers in, and the man and the woman choose autonomy over relationship with God and fellowship with God. Relationship with God was broken. And it wasn't just that it was broken, and that was the only implication, but all of a sudden, between God and man, there was this hostility, this enmity that arrived, because the fellowship that they had, the friendship that they once shared, was broken. So they had this former friendship. Reconciliation implies a former relationship or a former friendship. Here's the second thing it implies. It implies that the enmity, and don't be intimidated by that word. That just means a kind of hostility, a, you know, a broken relationship. The enmity exists on both sides. So you know, there's a a very small problem in this, and that is that the man had enmity, the woman had enmity towards God. But that wasn't the only problem, and that wasn't the biggest problem. It wasn't just that our craving for independence was ignited, and it blinded us to God so that we reached out and grabbed our own way, that our alienation from God was indeed serious. Yes, it is serious, but it's Actually, only a small symptom of a far bigger problem. You know, it, 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 it's like the person who lives unaware that they have a fatal form of leukemia, and they are walking up the steps one day, and they get a little winded. Well, you think, well, that's not a big deal. Somebody walks up the steps, you know, gets a little winded. That's a, that's a, that's a problem in the life of every person over 40, so, winded is typically a small problem, unless winded is a symptom of leukemia. You see, our enmity with God is like getting winded because we have leukemia. It's a small symptom of a bigger problem. The leukemia is God's enmity with us. You know, What happened back in the Garden of Eden, yeah, there was a small problem that God... Man became separated from God, and man kind of pulled back, and man felt hostile towards God. That is a small problem. But there's a far bigger problem that Scripture describes, and that is God's enmity towards those that break His law. And that's why verses 18, the second part, it says, "...who through Christ reconciled us to Himself." He reconciled us to himself, not him to us, like we were the party that really needed to be reconciled with. See, here's the point I'm trying to make. In reconciliation, God is the aggrieved party. God is the aggrieved party. Which leads me to my third implication, and that is that reconciliation makes God the reconciler. It makes God the reconciler. Again, listen to the way the verse goes. Who through Christ... Reconciled us to him. Us to him. Now let's just slow down for a second because this is where it gets truly amazing. Because the one who is aggrieved actually becomes the one who reconciles. He is the author of reconciliation which means we are the recipients of reconciliation. See, when you hear that word reconciliation, you have to keep in view that reconciliation is not something we do. It's something we receive. It's not something we allow. It's something we accept because God has brought it our way. It's not like one day we just decide to stop rejecting God. Hey, I'm just going to bury the hatchet here. I'm going to I'm going to throw it. Yeah, God, let's be friends. Come on. Come on back into my, my kingdom. You know, get back over here. I forgive you, God, you crazy God. You Come on over here. You know, that's like a man getting so angry, he kills another man, and then he turns to his grieving widow and says, you know what? I've actually forgiven him for my anger towards him. He has no moral ground to talk about forgiveness, because his sins against the man that he killed, his sins against the widow are astronomically greater than any sin that man had against the one who killed him. You know what's so amazing about reconciliation? I want you to think about this. It's that the one most sinned against does all the work to reconcile. The one most sinned against does all the work To reconcile. I want you to think about that. Stop and ponder that. Because this is another point that we arrive where the gospel just feels audacious. I mean, certainly out of step with the world, because you know, let's be honest, for most people, the one sinned against is the one who gets to be most offended. The one sinned against is the one who gets to be most unintreatable, most entrenched in their bitterness. Politically speaking, the one sinned against is the one who gets the most power. They derive power from the aggrieved status. They determine or they grab the high ground of victimization and then determine policy because they are the aggrieved party. But in the kingdom, it's completely different. And I think. God uses passages like this to get us thinking, because there's a time coming up that's probably even later on today where somebody's going to sin against you. Somebody perhaps in this very room is going to sin against you. Maybe somebody in your family, maybe even an enemy. And what we have before us is we have an example that is proclaimed to us through the gospel where the one most sinned against does the work to reconcile. Now, are are you beginning to see why Paul would bring up love and reconciliation in the same breath? Because true reconciliation requires a kind of extraordinary love. The reason why he's able to say, love controls me, is because he understood what it meant that Christ died for him. So we've got the first A, which illustrates for us the author of, of reconciliation, and leads us to the second one, which is the aim of reconciliation, the aim of reconciliation. So, if we're simply following the passage, we see that Paul drops us a little deeper into this connection between transformation and reconciliation. How did he reconcile us to himself? That's the question he answers. Next, next how did he do that? Look at verse 18b again. That is, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. So so for God to reconcile us to himself, he had to find a way to not count our trespasses against us. See, the naked truth of Scripture, the naked truth of of God's Word is that trespasses had to count. They had to count. And there's a reason why this doesn't say He made it so that our trespasses were dismissed on a technicality, He made it so that our trespasses were thrown out on insufficient evidence. No, because there's no way to uphold justice and righteousness and spring a sinner from the responsibility of their sin. To spring a sinner from the responsibility of being punished for their sin. And God's law could not bend. And God's law could not be circumvented nor compromised. The penalty must be paid. The punishment must be be delivered. The cost of sins must count against someone. Someone. Someone's got to pay for sin. It's only right. It's only just. It's only moral and ethical. You know, a judge is not moral nor ethical if there's no penalty for crime. I don't care who he or she is. If you have criminal after criminal arriving in their courtroom and they say, you know what, I'm aware that you raped or that you, or that you stole or that you murdered, but you know what, you seem like a nice guy. Why don't you go home and don't do it again? Nobody's going to rise up and say, I bless that man. She's very wise for the way she handled it. Listen to her compassion. No, they're going to feel like some profound perversion of justice has taken place. Wow, how much more? Must a holy and righteous God uphold his perfect justice for those who broke his holy, perfect law? So, this is what he did. He found a way to make our sins count, not against us, against him. Against him. God said, I love them so much. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to organize a swap. I'm going to arrange a substitution. I'm going to come to earth in the person of Jesus Christ, and I'm going to live the life that they should have lived. Why? Because that perfect life would accomplish what Adam did not accomplish. That perfect life would be able to maintain a relationship with the holy God. Would be able to maintain the friendship that man and God started out with in the garden. That perfect life would be deserving of eternal life. So God says, I'm going to come in the person of the God-man. I'm going to walk the walk that they should have walked. I'm going to live the life that they should have lived. I'm going to obey the law that they should have obeyed. And that will make me deserving of eternal life. And then this is what he does. He says, and once I earn all of that, once I make that statement, once I live that life, I'm going to make a swap. I'm going to do a substitution. I'm going to substitute myself in their place and have their sins count against me. I'm going to die the death that they deserved and in so, so doing, I'm going to sacrifice myself and put myself under the penalty that their sins deserved, not mine, their sins deserved, and I'm going to endure the punishment for the law-breaking that they did. You talk about amazing love. There's a reason why the holy and just God does not count our trespasses against us. It's because it was counted against him. And so Paul's bringing that forward so that they might understand, and we might understand as well, that there is a connection between all of that goodness and Paul's defense. All of that goodness and the power behind Paul. That there's something that happens in the life of a believer when their sin is not counted against them. For instance, when your sin is not counted against you, it means that you are, we are, approved by God. Approved, not tolerated, approved by God. You know what it means to have God's approval? It means that you can live this life, you can be in this church, in your small group, in your marriage, in your family, and you can be honest about who you really are. I mean, if you want to understand truly how Paul could boast in his weakness, how this dude could defend himself by, and this was his strategy, confessing how weak he was and confessing his sin, it was because he knew that his sins were not counted against him. They were counted against Christ. Therefore, he was approved before God. So Paul could acknowledge the reality of his sinfulness. He could acknowledge the reality of his weakness without feeling like he needed to be the most super spiritual person in the group. You know, the one that seeks to get the leverage by mentioning the supernatural experiences they've had or how much they've prayed that day or the way that, you know, the works of God can be thrown out there to build our kind of equity, to build our profile in the eyes of others. Listen, you want to have a great relationship with another believer. In fact, I think this works with unbelievers too. You want to have a great relationship with another person? Drop the illusion of perfection. Drop it. Just leave it behind. In fact, tell them you're a sinner. In fact, tell them how you sin. I mean, let's be honest. Everybody knows you're a sinner. Why don't you just remove the speculation on how you do it? One of the clearest Evidences of pride in the life of a man or a woman is their inability to talk about their weakness. It's that they just can't go there, and I know this because I've done it, just can't go there because there's a a perception of ourselves that we want to protect. And to bring in our own weakness or our own sinfulness would actually change the way people might think about that. But that's how Paul basically defends himself against these idiots. Not the Corinthians, I'm talking about the false teachers. What Paul says is, you think I'm weak? I'm weaker than you could ever imagine. You think I'm a sinner? You don't know half of the ways that I've sinned. And they just don't know what to do with that because they can't tolerate, nor do they understand the security that comes from a man or a woman when they understand what it means that they are approved by God. Let me just speak for a second to to those here that are leaders, man or woman, leader, and those here also that maybe do counseling in the world in which you run. So, So much of my ability to help people to the extent that I'm able to do it, so much of my ability to help people springs not from my dissimilarity to them, but from my similarity to them. In other words, when they are acknowledging some challenge that they're experiencing, I see myself in that struggle and I can make the connection between some area where I have met God and I can import that into the conversation. That doesn't mean necessarily that I can, I can identify with every sin confessed to me, but it does mean that I can identify with every sinner confessing to me. And that principle of identification where we see in the perfect high priest who sympathizes with us in our weakness, that principle of identification is at the center of gospel-centered leadership. It's near the core of gospel-centered counseling. Because you're starting from a position where you realize, wait a minute, I've been approved by God. Therefore, my sins are not counted against me. Therefore, I can be in this conversation. I can be a real person. Husbands, your wife needs to see a real person. I, I appreciate your desire to be strong, but do they know your weakness, or is that something that you're just trying to, you know, kind of manipulate around or never talk about? True strength is Pauline strength. It means we, we, we derive it first from the gospel, and we stand on the security of that. And then we speak of the reality, not just sin, but of the incredible love of God. So here's a second application, and that is that where sin is not counted, we are are free to love. That's the reason why Paul was able to say in verse 14 that the love of Christ controls me. He's he's free to love. And he's saying this to these these Corinthians, you know, these Corinthians. They're they're a funny group. A Corinthian is basically like a, like a, a Christian who doesn't get it. You know, a Christian who doesn't get it. You got anybody like that in your life? And don't roll your eyes too quickly because there's other people that are thinking about you when that's mentioned. (laughs) Somebody who just, you know, doesn't get it. And the danger that we all have with, with Corinthians is that there's a way that they live and there's a way that we behave that we kind of end up positioning ourselves so that we're always counting their sins because they're always out there. They're out in front of them, you know. There's a way that they live where it's just, you know, some men's sins go before them. That's the Corinthian. And there's a lot of sin to deal with. And so in the way that we relate to them, we end up thinking more about their sin, talking more about their sin. You know, most most teenagers are like Corinthians. And, And parents can often be always thinking about their sin and talking about their sin and making their sin the center point of the discussion There may be people in this very room that have avoided membership in the church because they felt their church was full of Corinthians. And and, and yet here we have Paul among the Corinthians knowing all of their baggage, adding his own baggage to their baggage, and able to say the love of Christ controls me. And there's something about this whole sin counting thing, you know. There's something about the way Paul's awareness that His sins have been counted against Christ, and so they're not counted against him. That kind of releases him from being in relationship as a sin counter. Do you ever have anybody like that in your life where you just know that, man, when you do something wrong, that's going to not only be counted in the moment, but it's going to be counted against you in the future? And this idea that God throws your sins as far away and buries them in the deepest sea, you know, these folks are always fishing, and they're pulling in catfish, and they're pulling in the carp of old sin, and and, and maybe that's you. And maybe that's really hard to, to understand, or maybe it's hard to admit, but, you know, your kids see you as a, you're a sin fisher. <laughs> You know, you're cast in the line. Okay, so what did you do last night? No, no. What did you really do last night? And it's not, that, it's not that we shouldn't be discerning. We should be, as Christians, the most discerning people on earth. But if our children live more aware of our suspicion than our love, then there's something about the gospel that we're just not getting. See, there, there's this sense where because Jesus paid the price for the sins of other believers. We don't need to live counting their sins because he lived and died counting their sins. See see what the gospel does is the gospel reminds us that at the cross I didn't get what I deserved. So I'm not going to live my life holding you hostage until you get what I think you deserve. Because I I've received the forgiveness of Jesus Christ for all of the things that I deserved, and that positions me now to not be a sin counter, to not be a sin fisher, but to be one who's able to love and let the love of Christ control them. It's how Paul applied reconciliation, because where sin is not counted, he was free to love. And so that's the, that's the second point. That's the second A, the aim of reconciliation. And then the final one is ambassador, the ambassador of reconciliation. So this, this is where the, the reminder of this passage just takes a fascinating turn because what really happens now is that the reconciled are called to be reconcilers. The reconciled are called to become Reconcilers, I mean, just listen to the way Paul says it. He says, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. And then he defines that, God making his appeal through us, and then he brings the the pathos that is behind that. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. One of the things I love about this passage is that it's really easy to exposit. I mean, there's just three specific facets of what this means of being a reconciler. It is that we are entrusted with a message. We are made an ambassador. We appeal for reconciliation. That's it. That's a breakdown of that passage. We, we are entrusted with a message. We are made an ambassador. We appeal for reconciliation. So let me comment briefly on, on each one of them. We're, we're entrusted with a message. Of course, the message is the gospel, the old, old story. In other words, we're not, we're not in a relationship, we're not in our community or in our family seeking to be original, seeking to be inventive. We don't add from the gospel, nor do we take away from the gospel. It is not a new story, it is an old story. It is a very old story that has been entrusted to us, the message of reconciliation, that we might re-speak it to other people but it's an old story. Are you familiar with that hymn, Tell Me the Old, Old Story? You know, it's written by this single woman back in 1866. Um, She's suffering. She's alone. She's bedridden. She needs hope. She needs a way to look forward. She needs some kind of inspiration in the moment. So she takes out a pen and she begins writing a poem that eventually becomes a hymn that goes, tell me the old, old story of unseen things above, of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love. Tell me the story simply as to a little child, for I am weak and weary and helpless and defiled. Brothers and sisters, we are entrusted with a message, but it's an old message. It's it's an old message for broken and weary sinners, but it is an old message that brings new life, not only to unbelievers, but believers as well. So we are entrusted with a message. That's the first point. And then we are made an ambassador. An ambassador. It's interesting for Paul that reconciliation in his mind is not simply about the Corinthians or for the Corinthians. It's not just this churchy thing where reconciliation is about me and God, and then it's about me and the brothers and sisters in Christ. Yeah, reconciliation talks about being united to God, united to each other. But also, it, it makes an appointment for us. It, it appoints us into a role where we are called to go into the world. And this word ambassador, it's like like a perfect word. It's an intentional word because an ambassador is, is appointed by a nation and sent to another land to represent that nation. He or she does not speak for themselves. They speak for the nation that sent them. The ambassador does not demand their own way. An ambassador does not act in ways that is inconsistent with the nation that has sent him or her. They are called to live in a foreign land among a people that are not their own, speaking a message that does not come from them, speaking a message that is authorized by another person. And God says, that's you. That's you. You are my ambassador on earth. And by the way, you're in the country you're supposed to go to. So we don't, I mean, for the majority of us, like 99.5% of us, we are right now, right where we are, in the country where we are supposed to be an ambassador. So we don't need a special ceremony of appointment. We're not waiting for, for something from God to begin the work of being an ambassador, because most of us are already in the nation we are, we are called to. You know, in the world of presidential politics, it's, it's understood that the appointment of of foreign ambassadors is like a 70 to 30 ratio. 70% of them are selected based upon their competence and their ability to do the job, but then there's this other 25 to 35% that are basically about you know, political favors or political appointments or a way for the president to express whatever he wants to express, which is how the, how the ambassadors of Norway, Argentina, and Iceland ended up being appointed without ever having visited the nations. But listen, that's that's not our problem. That's not our problem because we are already there. We are where? We are in the nation where we are supposed to be an ambassador. So think about that as you drive to work tomorrow. Think about that as you visit family members this week. Think about that as you go to Market Square or Governor Square Mall, that you are already in the area where you are supposed to be an ambassador and that Christ has reconciled you. Christ has sent you. You are an ambassador. You have a message and you are already in the land in which you are supposed to go. So we are ambassadors of reconciliation, which means we are entrusted with a message. We are made an ambassador. And then finally, We are called to appeal for reconciliation. Listen to these words. God making his appeal through us. And then this this little addition. We implore you. We implore you. I mean, you can almost feel in the words what's at stake here. The ambassador's not tucked away in some kind of protected embassy, just separated from the people. But like Jesus, he is among or she is among the people with this message, with the message of reconciliation, and with this passion in their heart, imploring them, be reconciled to God. You know, reading these words reminded me that Friday was the 60th anniversary of the martyrdom of the five missionaries to Ecuador, one of which was Jim Elliott, who left behind his wife, Elizabeth, and her 10-month-old baby. This had taken place after months of <clears throat> kind of preparation work had gone in, they had circled the plane over this tribe that had never been touched, never been reached, and they were dropping notes and dropping gifts until it seemed like they had established some kind of credibility, some kind of relationships, and they landed the plane in the jungle of Ecuador, seeking to reach the Acas with the word of reconciliation. Aca means savages. And they were true to their name because shortly after landing the five men were savagely attacked with spears all of them were lost elizabeth elliot grieved the loss of her husband jim but she refused to leave ecuador and shortly thereafter one day as she was in her home there's a knock at the door And two women are there, both of them Akas, both of them needing her help. And so with the heart of reconciliation, being controlled by the love of God, Elizabeth Elliot opens her home and they move in with her, which then establishes an even stronger relationship of trust between these two women and the tribe so that only months later, Elizabeth Elliot is able to follow the five men who died, follow them back into the tribe where she then went and lived for the next couple of years, which then began a series of events where through a life of reconciliation and the word of reconciliation, many, many of the Akas came to Christ. In fact, the son of one of the martyrs, Nate Saint, his son Steve Saint, ended up traveling the world with the head of the tribe, the head of the Aka tribe, the very man who speared his father to death, and they would go throughout the world preaching this message of reconciliation. Elizabeth Elliot died this past June. Kim and I once had the the privilege of sharing a meal with her and her husband Lars. And now she belongs to the ages. This is no trifling business, this, this, this thing of reconciliation. This is not something we can just breeze over, that the stakes are real, the stakes are urgent, they are eternal, and the power is real and urgent, and eternal as well. It's the kind of power that makes new creations out of savages. And I understand if you don't necessarily feel the need to appeal, the passion to appeal, the kind of feelings that have to be generated in order for us to feel like we want to implore. I I can relate to that. And And so... I want to close today and invite you to join me in praying that God would fill us with with a heart, a heart that sees not simply the need to appeal, but has a passion to implore because we know what it means to be separated. We remember the effect of being separated. And we want to be able to say to others the very thing that was said to us, which is how this section ends. Be reconciled to God. Let's pray.